Connecting Minds is a space dedicated to honoring the amazing authors, researchers, clinicians, artists, and entrepreneurs who are contributing to our collective evolution or simply making the world a better place. These thought-provoking conversations are intended to expand our horizons, so come with an open mind and let us grow together. Here is your host, Christian Yordanov. Hello and welcome to the Connecting Minds podcast. My name is Christian Yordanov, your host, and I'm very glad you're here with me today. Today on the show, we have Dr. Jeremy Wheat, who is the CEO of Universal Ibogaine. And the topic of our discussion will be Iboga and Ibogaine and addiction. So uh, in case you didn't know, Ibogaine is the extract from the Iboga plant, which grows in West Africa, in places like Gabon, and it's a sacrament in the Bwiti tradition there. And basically, Ibogaine has tremendous potential to treat addictions. And as someone who has seen firsthand what addictions can do to people, families, larger social groups, this is a cause very near and dear to my heart. So I will support it any way I can. And that is why I was delighted when uh, Jeremy agreed to come on the show. Uh, as you may already know, the opiate addiction crisis in North America affects many millions of people. Heroin is just a tiny percentage of, of that. Uh, it's, it's prescription drugs really being the real devastating agent there. And of course, generally what happens in North America steadily spreads to the rest of the world. So Europe and Asia, they, they, they will follow suit. They're like, it is already an issue in the UK, for example. And of course, let's not forget other addictions like for to stimulants, crack, cocaine, of course, the ubiquitous alcohol, which is ravaging places like UK, Ireland, and then of course, other addictions. So tremendous potential for, for this psychoactive substance. A lot of research that still must be done to really understand how it can best be used. How, what what the best protocols are, and um, of course we'll talk about Universal Ibogaine's plans to do such clinical trials. So this was a great conversation with uh, Jeremy. Flowed really well. He's really not knowledgeable on the topic, um, and just I, I you can see the passion he has for Iboga Ibogaine and really helping to to bring this um, sacraments gifts to the world, which I love. Uh, a little bit about our guest, Jeremy Wheat. Dr. Jeremy Wheat has over 17 years strategic advisory experience focused on minister-level guidance on the mining sector across 50 projects in over 30 countries in Europe, Africa, Central Asia, and South Pacific. Jeremy also has a decade-long interest in the medicalization of Ibogaine in a holistic treatment setting. He visited Gabon in 2016 and was initiated into Buiti. In 2018, he helped set up Tabula Rasa Retreat in Portugal, now one of the leading Ibogaine treatment facilities globally. He has organized Ibogaine conferences in Vienna, Porto, and London. He has a PhD in European philosophy from the University of Warwick, UK. So, yeah, really glad. Uh, was very excited to publish this episode. Really, really important topic. As always, show notes on christianyordanov.com 
for this particular episode, all you have to do is go to christianjordanov.com forward slash zero six and the, the page will come up. And um, that's about it. I want to thank you for spending the time to listen to the Connecting Minds podcast. And without further ado, here is our guest, Jeremy Wheat. Okay, today on the Connecting Minds podcast, we have Jeremy Wheat from Universo Ibogaine Inc. Uh, Jeremy, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's just uh, do some kind of, you know, background stuff. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you discovered uh, uh, Iboga and Ibogaine? Oh, yeah. So um, I have a PhD in philosophy from 22 years ago. Then I fell into consulting, uh, got involved in the dot-com era. Everybody needed a website around about 2000, and the idea was if you don't have a corporate website, your business will die. Uh, then I moved to Nigeria and spent 12 years living in Nigeria and got very interested in uh, different forms of culture and spiritual practice there. And then one day when I was back uh, in London on a London bus with a mate of mine and we were talking about psychedelics, this was about at least 10 years ago, uh, he said, have you heard of Iboga? And I said, no, what's that? And he told me a little bit and then I was hooked. I did some research and just the idea of, um, you know, there being a spiritual tradition that's maybe thousands of years old and has this psychedelic sacrament. It, I just was really, really intrigued and I did research and I met one person and they introduced me to another person. Eventually, I ended up going to Gabon for an initiation into Buiti and you know, taking Gaboga sacrament. And yeah, and I was just doing a lot of voluntary work around Ibogaine and becoming more and more interested. And I had the opportunity earlier this year to join the board of uh, an Ibogaine company and actually, you know, sort of it, it started to merge on to being something I do in the daytime rather than sort of evenings and weekends and yeah. became CEO in June and yeah, absolutely gratified and passionate about Ibogaine medicalization. It's an incredible molecule. It's, it's very different from other psychedelics that we, we hear about a lot. Um, it has multiple target sites of action in the brain, which uh, do very different things to the classic, you know, serotonin 5-HT2A um, interactions. So I'm passionate about it becoming uh, medicalized, safely available to as many people as possible, uh, primarily for addiction treatment, um, but also it has uh, potential other applications in terms of neurogenesis um, for Parkinson's and so on. So. Mm. It's very exciting times for us, uh, you know, in the Ibogaine community. Yeah. So um, do you feel comfortable talking a little bit about your experience with uh, Iboga, Ibogaine, your, you know, your actual experiences? And uh, I know you. I've listened to other folks talk about their Buiti initiation. I know they're not really allowed to divulge that many details, but would you feel comfortable divulging what you can divulge? about what, what it is like, you know? Yeah, the, what, sure. Yeah. yeah, I have no issues talking about it. Uh, I mean, the first thing to say is, you, you know, you go to Gabon for a few weeks, um, you're going to scratch the surface of the surface. Buiti, you know, the, the traditions around Iboga rituals in Gabon are, you know, centuries old at least and um, via the pygmies, you know, millennia old. So you go there as Johnny Foreigner, um, you're going to, yeah, you're going to pick up bits and pieces. It, it's, you know, 
Gabon is thought of or the Buiti is thought of as, you know, the Tibet of Africa. And it's a bit like going to a, you know, Tibetan monastery, like for a few weeks, you're going to pick up that there's an absolutely, I don't, I don't use the word lightly, um, but there is an awesome body of knowledge, you know, so many thousands of people going back so far in time. Um, and yeah, there's an architecture of the spiritual experience that's evolved there. And it's a gift to the rest of humanity. You know, it's just incredible. Specifically for me going there, it, I went to Ibando, which is where a lot of people go. Uh, there's a French guy, uh, Tatayo, who's been in Gabon for many decades. And uh, it's, a, it's a nice entree because, you know, it's not like you're going to the a village or whatever and you just don't know what's going on. Um, and what I appreciated just as much as the Aboga experience was just the different – each day you're doing a different – preparation you know you're you're doing uh you know you're drinking this foul thing which is making you vomit uh, you're being smoked so you have the sort of canvas thing and you, you're sitting on top of this flame and the smoke seeping out you're going to the forest for uh, baptism in cold water and you're taking your first initial iboga so every day was i mean just thinking about it now and it's coming back to me every day was incredible so it wasn't just and this is a really important point i think it wasn't just about the aboga. It was about, you know, slow immersion in a culture um, which which is very deep, very old, um, and very wise. And then the exp- the aboga experience itself, sort of, you know, a weekend was incredibly intense. And again, it wasn't just the aboga. It was the 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 Buiti music is absolutely incredible. You know, the the Buiti harp and oh yeah, I know it. And, yeah, it's the sounds cool. of the sounds of Buiti music sort of uh, tran- transfigurative of consciousness alone. Um, so yeah, I'm, I don't know. Since that experience, I, you, you you do something like that and you open yourself up to it. You have a tie with Gabon for the rest of your life, basically. So mm. whatever I do with Ibogaine it has to always look backwards and forwards to support to, to Gabon, whether whether or not the, Ib- the Ibogaine is sourced in any way from Gabonese Tabernanthi Aboga is irrelevant. It's the, it's the source culture of, of, of Ibogaine. And um, yeah, it's, it's absolutely incredible experience specifically, you know, the trip itself for me, it's always feels ancestral. It feels like you're connecting to uh, lineages that you don't even know about. Um, when I was in Gabon, I had a very full visual of a samurai warrior. <laughs> I have no links with Jap- Japan, genetically or otherwise, but there was a samurai warrior kneeling and smiling at me. And oftentimes for me, I mean, everybody's experience is different. It's I see in very visual quality people I assume to be from the past Um and they're smiling. It's like, ah, you've come. Hi, welcome, welcome, welcome to this frequency. Um, the very first time I took a iboga was in the UK, and I just—it was like sort of seeing uh, a stack of photographs and of faces, and just like that speed of faces going past. I have no idea who these people are, but again, I just got the sense that these are souls from some ancestral realm. Wow. And uh, what is the receptivity of the, you know, the folks there in Gabon to, you know, us foreigners going there and kind of yeah, initiate me, please? What, what, how they, what's their attitude to us? 
I think very, very um, benign, very positive. Um, you know, it needs all the support. Bwiti needs all the support it can get. Mm. Uh, you know, there's internal opponents of Bwiti within Gabon. Uh, you know, people of a you know Christian evangelical bend who just see this as like you know stuff from the past that should be banned. Um, but at the same time, there are powerful advocates for Bwiti in politics. Um, but yeah, in general, my experience was it's 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 profound. It's like you're you're being initiated into something really deep, and it's really serious. And um, yeah, so people are welcoming, but also very serious about what you're doing. You know, you're not, you're not going for some crazy experience or, you know, it's, yeah, it's a spiritual practice and a spiritual technology that you're, you're being welcomed into, but you have to be very serious about your preparations and and your, your intentions and motivations. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, uh, been reading a lot about um, on various uh, boards and you know listening to podcasts about the actual experience of ibogaine. It's definitely it doesn't seem like it's a very pleasurable experience, though long term it's a rewarding experience. So it definitely takes. It's not for the pleasure seeker. Would I be correct in assuming that this experience? Yeah, you know, um, you know, if I think about that personally, would I like to take ibogaine again? Well. You know, I'd have to spend a year getting ready for it now because I know what a big deal it is. Um, so yeah, it's it's a physiologically, it's it's a heavy thing. You know, um, you have ataxia, so you can't really move your body. You know, you're sort of almost like body paralysis. And if you need to get up, you know, for the bathroom, you open your eyes and everything's spinning, and there's like f- like fire lights. It's a bit like the light from a fire that just goes out of the grate. You know, these orange, yellow, and they're just swirling, and you don't know which way's up, and you're kind of crawling to the bathroom, and you just want to lie down again. I mean, it really hits the body in a much more powerful way than than classical psychedelics. Um, so yeah, it is, it, it is not a recreational fun experience. It's, you know, a complete reset of your central nervous system. Uh, it's, you know, it's ego death, it's going into the ancestral realm, but yeah, you come out of it and you're, you know, because of the strong, you know, physiologically and, uh, in terms of the brain, uh, because you're getting, uh, increased neuroplasticity, because basically I became the molecule. Once it interacts with the brain, it, it stimulates the production of GDNF, glial cell-derived neurotrophic factor, which is sort of like the brain's support system. If there's you know damage, then these these helper cells just go into hyperdrive. So you you know the production of new neurons, dopamine neurons, it just goes off the scale. Anyway, the end result experientially is that you feel like you've got a new brain. You feel you know you you're, you've got a sort of a brain of a, a, a ch- an adolescent where you're just so much more receptive to new information. And that stays with you because what happens with Ibogaine is it when you consume it, it metabolizes into noribogaine. And noribogaine stays in the fatty tissues for months, you know, up to three months. So you've got this almost like uh, internal or endogenous microdosing system. And the noribogaine itself is producing GDNF. So it's like, yeah, you've got this this internal microdosing system which is increasing your neuroplasticity. So it's really good period after ibogaine to not go home, not go back to the family and to the work situation. But if 
if you can really organize your life that you spend a month or two months months after ibogaine this is if you're coming from an addiction background if you can spend a month or two months in an aftercare facility or somewhere in nature and just retuning yourself you know like looking at the the dewdrops on the leaves and the you know the sunrise and just appreciating being there in the world mm. and getting back into having a, a body and sensing you know the realm of the senses and the delights of sensuous experience so like you're really recalibrating what it is to have senses and perceive and be in the world um and then just to play you know so many people who've suffered from addiction as we know very well now from the work of Gabor Mate and others you know they suffer they've suffered through repeat childhood trauma and you know the childish playful you know curious part of them got splintered off through this mm. through this um, experience and it's about reintegrating play and enjoyment into your world so it's really important not to do serious stuff and serious work like earning money and whatever and dealing mm. with the things that used to trigger you before immediately after your ibogaine experience and unfortunately people that do ibogaine and then just go back to work and go back home you know they can relapse um because the the neurophysiological reset lasts for a few months and and then you're back to how you were basically and you know there is an aspect of the ibogaine community where people just take ibogaine every year and or you know every six months and in a way that's a bit disappointing and a sort of misuse of the molecule that you should do ibogaine maybe Correct. once or maybe twice and really you know work in a therapeutic setting to restore yourself back to the pre-addicted state and for that to be you know your setting for the rest of your life basically yeah 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 and uh, we'll get into uh, you know talking a little bit about the addiction stuff and the the treatment process but before that it was interesting that you talk about this gdnf um promoting neurogenesis uh, what do you think of, I, I, I think it's a relatively new trend of folks microdosing, microdosing with um, either the root bark or ibogaine or something, you know, the, the, the total alkaloid extract. What do you think? Do you think there's any benefits and um, could there be any benefits outside of addiction, for example? I was just looking. I've got my little bottle of iboga here, which I microdose from. I don't know where it's gone now. <laughs> I think I think you have to be careful, um, be, precisely because um, iboga tincture, which I do have somewhere here, mm. um, it stays in your system. Uh, I don't think it's similar to microdosing psilocybin or LSD or anything. I think you have to be careful with it. Um, I do microdose. But I'll do it for a week and then leave it for a few months. And right, right. it's just because it does stay on board. So you don't need to, yeah, I, I don't think it's going to ultimately be um, a long-term protocol personally. Yeah. There have been um, <clears throat> anecdotal research with microdosing Iboga for Parkinson's disease, which has been effective in the sense that if you combine uh, iboga tincture with the traditional uh, conventional Parkinson's medicine, which is called Cinemet. Uh, well, basically what happens is you've, if you have Parkinson's and you take Cinemet, it, it effectively, to my understanding, stops working and being effective after a while. But somehow, and we don't understand the interactions, but the iboga sort of recatalyzes and reactivates the Cinemet 
Um, so maybe in the case of, you know, neuro, neuro damage in one way or another, microdosing may have a, a better application. But I would worry about long-term uh, microdosing of Iboga just in terms of potential damage to the liver or whatnot. Um, so I'd be, I'd be careful with it. I'm not against it. I do it myself, but I do it sparingly. Sparingly. And what, what, what are some of the qualitative effects that, if, if any, that you can perceive from it? Well, don't forget that um, microdosing, and, and people do forget this, but, uh, you know, Ibogaine was first isolated in, in France um, 115 or so years ago. And uh, from the 30s onwards, there was uh, a little tincture called Lambarene, which was basically available in France, and people took it as a, a muscle stimulant. Um, and I think I think that's the area where you find uh, iboga microdosing useful is in increase in uh, energy levels because, and I don't understand the deep science of this, but it does increase the production of uh, ATP in the mitochondrial cell system. So definitely more energy. Um, also increased sex drive, I would say. It's sort of like an aphrodisiac in, in uh, you know, low dose or micro dose. Um, so, you know, if you're feeling a bit sluggish uh, f physically or if your libido is down, I think uh, that's another application of uh, Ibog Ibogaine uh, microdosing or Iboga microdosing. <clears throat> All right. So let's, uh, I, think the, I think the most important part, you know, let's talk about uh, a little bit about the treatment process and um, what, what, what does the treatment process entail for, let's say, someone addicted to opioids, heroin, maybe alcohol, um, cocaine, what yep. does, what preparations would they go through? Uh, what is the treatment process like, let's say for a week or two at a clinic? And then what is the integration and after, aftercare like? That's a good question. Thank you, uh, Christian. I, um, I'm a very strong believer in Ibogaine assisted psychotherapy. Um, very similar in a way to what MAPS has done with MDMA. It's, you know, it's having Ibogaine in a, the context of going through pre-treatment therapy and post-treatment um, integration. It's a very good friend of mine who's one of the leading um, Ibogaine pre-treatment therapists, Anders. And yeah, it's basically lining someone up, cracking them open, get them, getting them ready, you know, accessing deeper levels of intentionality, uh, realizing the seriousness of purpose. You know, I went back to this, you know, in terms of talking about the Bwiti, but realizing that you're on your knees and you need to be on your knees. Like, I'm ready, you know, I'm desperate, I'm open, you know, like um, this isn't a quick fix, this is a deep fix. Um, so, yeah, I would say optimally six one-hour uh, pre-treatment therapy sessions where you're um, – you're cracking open your relationship to your addiction. You're realizing that you're not defined by your addiction. This is where I think um, Ibogaine therapy for addiction is sort of like the opposite or the antithesis of 12-step. You know, in, in classic 12-step, it's like, you know, my name is X and I'm an addict and you go through the steps. And I'm not knocking the 12 steps. Um, it's just that it doesn't work for most people. It works for, you know, maybe 5 or 10% of the people. Um, but we, we, but with ibogaine therapy, it's you know my name is X and I'm not defined by my addiction. My addiction is a history that happened to me, 
thanks to childhood trauma, and it's something I'm going to walk away from. So you go through these, you know, sequence of like opening yourself up, cracking yourself open. Then you go and do, you know, the Ibogaine. There's some, there's a lot of medical details. I don't need to go into too much detail, but, you know, pre-treatment screening, making sure your heart is in good working order, you know, your liver, liver system, uh, your your metabolism is functional. Um, Psychologically, it's not for everyone. Um, So there's quite a rigorous you know, in the best case, there's quite a rigorous pre-screening, um, physiological and psychological. Age ceiling, if yep. there is one. What is the um, oldest you could, you could be? Question. That's a good question. Um, that's a good question. I would say rather than being an old age ceiling, there's a young age ceiling. So people in their 20s can often just not be mature enough for it. It's almost like there's the minimum age is if you're 21, 22, and you're a few years into your addiction, you might not be ready for it. You might be wasting the opportunity or you may well have to come back a few. few, And this is this is the experience, I think, of Ibogaine providers. It's just you're not really on top of or got to the bottom of your addiction in your 20s. So I would say, you know, anyone younger than late 20s, they're probably not going to get the most from the experience and they're probably going to relapse and come back. Um, in terms of old age, as long as your, you've, your ticker, your heart is in good condition, um, you're, you know, you're relatively fit. You, you can be in your seventies or maybe even older, you would adapt the protocol based on, you know, your, your state of health and your age. Um, some Ibogaine providers are pretty much low dose over say over 10 days, 50 MGs a day which is not threatening to any age, I would, I would argue. Um, anyway, you, you go through your Ibogaine treatment. Now, there's a big difference, Christian. If you're an opioid addict um, compared to if you're a stimulant addict, so if you've been on heroin in the last 20 years, you go through your Ibogaine, you're like, oh, my God, I'm not having withdrawal symptoms, which is, like, amazing for someone who's had an opiate addiction problem. It's like, I don't have withdrawal. I didn't think that was possible. This is incredible. Oh, my God. You know, it's like a religious experience. It's very common for people to be absolutely amazed that they're free. Um, but then two or three days later, the you know, the sheen of Ibogaine wears off, and it's like, oh, I'm feeling pain. I'm achy. Or they have rest, what's called restless legs. And so people who've had a long-term opioid addiction or opiate addiction, getting used to being, you know, without without opiates is 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 getting used to the normal aches and pains that you know non-addicted humans have, and they're not used to it, and they find it really uncomfortable, and it's like a psychological thing more than a physiological thing. So that's the point where you want to start getting people into their bodies, you know, Kundalini yoga, breath work, meditation. You know, energetic type healings are more important at that stage than kind of verbal narrative stuff. Meanwhile, if you're a stimulant-based addict, you know, cocaine, crack, whatever, it's like even I've seen, you know, even during the treatment, it's like, I'm ready, I'm good, I can go home, I want to go and play sport. You know, it's like because because their cellular energy level is, you know, and alcohol is a little, Alcoholism is a little bit like heroin. It's like you've got very low cellular energy and it's hard to get out of bed, you know. But with yeah, stimulant addiction, it's like you, you the opposite problem. It's just slow down, 
stay in bed, just go for a walk, you know, this afternoon, you know. Um, so, yeah, the, 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 pre, the post-treatment uh, depends on what your addiction is and, and also the specifics of who you are and your personality. And ideally, you want to have someone for a month afterwards so that they're just like slowly returning out of the cave to the daylight of, you know, normal everyday ex- existence. And I think, you know, Universal Ibogaine, the protocol we want to develop is encouraging and incentivizing people to be able to spend a thrift, you know, a few weeks out of life post the Ibogaine treatment. And then, yeah, the ideal is a little bit like 12 step. The ideal once you've left is to have a fellowship, you know, like people you can have a Skype with or whatever once a week for the rest of your life, um, you know, tune in and, you know, yeah, that, that, that aspect of the, the fellowship aspect of 12 step, I think is pretty good. Um, but non-judgmental and, you know, people fall off the wagon and that's fine. There's no shame. There's no shame in relapsing. It's great. It's like, okay, you relapse. Yeah. What can you learn from that experience? Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's have another go around, you know, probably have to do, I began again, but what lessons have we learned? So even relapse, you can take it as just a wonderful opportunity, not shameful or I failed or, oh God, you know, I'm destined to go back to this. It's just like a really good therapist will get you to see it as a glowing, glistening opportunity to do things better next time. That's amazing. You know, that's really, it's, it's so kind of refreshing to hear you say that because a lot of folks that struggle with addiction, there's, you know, that shame aspect and that's one of the biggest impediments to really overcoming it, isn't it? Just a a, a quick uh, side question. Is the actual journey on Ibogaine uh, music assisted? Do you you use the Buiti music or any like map style playlist my personal preference is to do i began with buiti just because i came through you know originally with the experience in gabon it's a really good question we we haven't figured it out yet and i think my current view on it is it's up to the patient if they've got their favorite music that they want to play that's really personal to them that's inspiring then we would play that Some people just want to put the eye mask on and get on with it, you know, in silence. So I would say there isn't like a sound protocol that's the same for everybody because it's just such a deeply personal experience. And I wouldn't want to, you know, some people absolutely hate boise music. They find it weird and jarring and disruptive and not calming. Yeah. I respect that. Yeah. yeah. I love the boise music. I actually have couple of Spotify playlists that I sometimes I'm, when I'm working out, I have it in the background. I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, I do. It's like being in outer space. Yeah. It's, I, um, it, cause I, I, I come from like a techno background. I used to listen to a lot of techno in my twenties and, um, uh-huh. it, it almost has techno elements to it. But let me ask you, Jeremy. Um, so maybe for the listeners, I've, I've been reading a little bit about this. Can you tell us? So we, we, We know that the the root bark, they you know, in the traditional Buiti ceremonies, uh, they eat copious amounts of the root bark, and when it m- many of the clinics use um, isolated ibogaine, um, HCL, and then there is the total alkaloid extract. Can you give folks uh, an idea of some of the rationale why the extract is used, and what are you know what are the advantages to using the extract? 
as opposed to you know the the total alkaloid or the the root bark um, uh, for the treatment. That's a really good question. No, I'm happy to address that. So, to begin with, my experience in Gabon. I don't know, I've got a sensitive digestive system, so there's only so much handfuls of this kind of ammonia-tasting sawdust that I can put into myself. At some point, they go round in a circle when you're in, in, you know, doing it in Gabon, and when it's your turn again, they, you kind of get spooned it, and then they hold you up by your arms, and they're kind of bouncing you up and down just to make sure it goes down. But yeah, I threw up um, massively. <laughs> and uh, so it's not... Even though the ritual um, and the music and the rhythms and the dancing is amazing, it's not a particularly efficient delivery system for the actual molecules, right? The uh, however many uh, alkaloids there are in Tabernanthia boga. I'm not sure if we're actually sure. It's certainly more than twelve, and it might be different alkaloids for different species of the plant. So anyway, it makes sense if you you know, want to have a more efficient delivery system to do some first level of synthesis. So you end up with total alkaloids, which is just like the refined suite of alkaloids, but in a much reduced powder form. Maybe you take a teaspoon or two. Uh, unfortunately, I haven't had that experience. I think if if I do do um, if I do go through an iboga experience again, I'd probably do the total alkaloid because there's just something mysterious about the entourage effect. You know. As somebody described it, it's sort of like a chord versus playing one string of a guitar. It's like a chord. That that kind of harmonics of all the different alkaloids, you know, ibogamine, ibogaline, you know, tabernanthine, all of these do something magical. And so you're much more likely to have a spiritual, profound, spiritual, visionary experience with the total alkaloids. Um, as you as you go to the next level of synthesis, you're with purified total alkaloid, which is you know ibogaine, ibogamine, and ibogaline. Um, some people find that very pukey. In other words, you, you may throw up, and other people it's just like a train hitting you. It's like a real powerful. Poof. It can be visionary, but it's more just like a full on proper reset. Um, and then, and, and many providers like PTA because it is very effective in terms of addicting, uh, interrupting addiction. But uh, yeah, the 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 ultimate end stage is um, ibogaine hydrochloride, which is you know the addiction interrupter in its purest form, uh, less visionary, um, you know, less hallucinations if you want to call them hallucinations. Um, mm. And I think, uh, in a way, an optimum protocol in the future might be I began just to I began HCL to knock out the addiction, um, and then maybe a week later you have the experience of the total alkaloid because you know what people are like they they take something like uh, I began and they're kind of not only this, they have two, they have two things or two expectations in their mind one is you know I don't want to be an addict anymore and two I want to have the visions you know I want to have that psychedelic experience. So I think, you know, a week later having the, the total alkaloid will, will more than likely give you the, you know, the return to the childhood trauma and the, the, the allowing for it to come up and be released or going to the ancestral realm or, you know, whatever it is. And then that's a pretty satisfying, you know, that, that meets those two expectations that people can often have. I also think just, you know, more generally that, we're at the very beginnings of uh, thinking through what an advanced protocol would be. 
you know, there's been an underground scene for Ibogaine for the last 20 years. There's been a lot of experimentation. There's a lot of wisdom out there. So the idea of, you know, Ibogaine hydrochloride for the reset, and then maybe at the end of your stay, you do 5-MeO-DMT um, or, or you do psilocybin. Um, I'm a little bit, um, I wouldn't like to say to someone who suffered from a substance use disorder, oh, you, you do Ibogaine and then there's all these other psychedelics. And just to, yeah. the danger with that is you give, Persons who've come from a substance use disorder background, the idea that uh, the only way they can get well is by imbibing substances. And you've got to do the work yourself, you know, you've got to do the, you know, you don't need substances all the time to heal, in other words. And there is a bit of a risk that that narrative is sort of cropping it, cropping up. Um, for me personally, you know, psychedelics are incredibly precious and I don't take them very often at all because I just take them so seriously. You know, it's not like, oh, this week I'm this. this week, no, 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 no. Meditate, do the work, reflect, you know, and every few years, you know. But if you're coming from a substance use background, which I'm not, there is the risk of you falling back into, you know, habitual patterns. So there is more of a, a requirement of different forms of sacrament of one kind or another. Um, but yeah, just hopefully, hopefully that gives you a clear idea of the yeah, route yeah. from a relatively inefficient delivery system of, you know, root bark, um, total alkaloid, PTA, and then Ibogaine hydrochloride. Yeah, that that's really good kind of overview, Jeremy. Thank you. Actually, I, I've I've kind of heard people say, you know, um, the the plants, these plant teachers, they have the the spirit of the plant. So, the more of the natural form that you can ingest, kind the more you you get the the actual spirit of the plant. So, some say like the the coca leaf, you know, it has the cocaine. People have um, um, uh, heart attacks and health problems because they're disrespecting the spirit of the plant. So maybe like for psycho-spiritual purposes, maybe you're right, the total alkaloid kind of moving the direction of more alkaloids, more of the plant. Maybe that's kind of going to be a, you know, a, a more um, effective way to get those spiritual experiences for people. Yeah, I, th I think so. Um, you know, there is going to be a move to, you know, producing Ibogaine HCL in the lab from, uh, you know, a chemical precursor. And on the one hand, you know, as CEO of Universal Ibogaine, you know, I, from a business perspective, I see, okay, yeah, optimize supply chain, you know, reducing risks and all the rest of it. Um, but if I take my business hat off um, and I think psychotherapeutically, I think, Okay, yeah, I guess it's not the best, but it may be the way we have to go forwards as a, you know, a kind of uh, widely available medicine. But yeah, I, 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 I do have a bias in favor of plant-based medicines, psychedelic medicines, definitely. Awesome. Um, so just, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and get some folks to specifically talk about uh, childhood traumas and how they can lead to various um, issues with like addiction. Um, but could you expand a little bit? Because I, I, I listened to some someone else talk about Ibogaine that some 60% of the people that come to him, the root of their addiction seemed to be a feeling of ab abandonment from the same sex parent. Could you maybe expand a little bit? What, what trauma, what, what childhood traumas 
can kind of lead to addiction? What do we know? <sighs> you know, I mean, obviously there's the, you know, the, 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 there's the obvious traumas of, you know, physical abuse, uh, neglect, uh, sexual abuse and so on. But, um, I wouldn't like to be like either or about um, trauma. I think we all experience trauma. You know, the birth event is a, is a traumatic event that we all go through. Um, and people can be traumatized by incredibly subtle things that happen when they're, you know, a toddler or whatever. And, uh, you know, nothing, nothing like uh, dramatic, like being beaten or something or being sexually abused. So... And I think we all have it. I think, you know, it's not like there's a group of people who are addicted and who went through childhood trauma and then there's the rest of us. I think we're all on a continuum of we all need to heal in different ways. Um, I also think there is clearly epigenetic trauma. You know, there's lineage, genetically lineage, you know, passed through the genes. Um, that's been proven in studies on, you know, Jewish populations but uh, all of you know, all of us have ancestors who suffered, and you know, sort of, you, as soon as you go into the past, the nineteenth century, and prior to that, life was tough for uh, you know people, and so we have the epigenetic lineage trauma. Then we may have other forms of trauma that we don't even understand. So, I would say that you know, my my my, I don't make a strong distinction between um, psych people that do psych psychedelics for psycho-spiritual work and people that do it of healing from trauma. We're all somewhere in that kind of bubble um, and we're all going towards it for, for, for healing purposes. Um, we all, you know, we all get triggered. We are all predisposed to snapping back into a reflex, which is not the best version of ourselves and so on. So, but to the, to your point about same, same sex, um, you know, trauma and whatnot, I, you know, I'm not an expert. I wouldn't be able to speak to that. And um, so I, I suppose we kind of touched on this, but w from what I've um, from what I've read, uh, users of e Ibogaine uh, or Iboga, their integration process could be months, sometimes years. What, what is kind of, what, why is the integration process so long with Ibogaine or Iboga? Comparably to other psychedelics, yeah. Um, well, firstly, it's just the physiological aspect of having noribogaine on board for a few months. You know, if you take psilocybin or LSD or you know whatever else, ketamine, you know, it's it's the the the, the molecule is in metabolized and out of your system within hours, where it's in your system as noribogaine for for weeks, if not months. So you're feeling you're feeling slightly different and f perceiving slightly differently and your brain is like highly more neuroplastic than um, previously. So you've, yeah, it's got a long lasting physiological effects due to its unique me metabolic, uh, metabolic uh, characteristics. Um, but then there is, yeah, just another level where it's just mysterious that you've touched this vibration, you've connected in a certain way. I, I think about my experience with the Gabon and, it's like you are changed um, fundamentally. Maybe it's similar mentally in a way to psychedelics. I'm contradicting myself a little bit because, for instance, if you do if you do psilocybin and you have a sense of the divine um, that you didn't 
imagine could exist, you know, that lightness of being that's uh, ineffable. You can't even really talk about it without it, without ruining what it was at the time. So, yeah, I, in a way, ultimately, when I think about it, I think the long term is probably not that different to other psychedelics. If you're going into that psychedelic experience, to quote my friend Anders, with the respect and reverence for the sacrament. So, you know, if you're, if you're going into a, a psilocybin experience and you're prepare, or an ayahuasca experience and you're preparing yourself with the dia and you're reflecting on your intention and da-da-da-da-da, it can stay with you just as long as a, a, a boga experience or as an ibogaine experience. Ultimately, the only difference is this um, metabolic uh, aspect, um, where you are physiologically and in terms of your central nervous system, you are activated by the noribogaine for months afterwards. Yeah, you, you, you did say it's like a nervous system reset. Did I? Am I correct in saying it? Um decreases or reduces your dopamine levels to kind of pre-addiction levels? What does that actually mean? Yeah, so um, what happens is, going back to the glial cell-derived neurotrophic factor, um, it it targets an area of the brain, and let me get this right, I can never fully remember it, the ventral tegmental area. Anyway, it's the VTA, um, uh, which is near the cerebellum. And then, so that's the kind of engine room of the production of these uh, growth, growth factor cells. And then what they do is they express dopamine. So it's like a sort of uh, input to dopamine production, if you like. And then those dopamine neurons get expressed out throughout the rest of the brain structure. So basically, uh, just imagine like visually, you've got an engine room of dopamine neuron production, and then they get distributed from that core area of the brain out through into the uh, frontal cortex and whatnot. And so, yeah, you do have new dopamine neurons, basically. And, yeah, that sounds great and amazing. You know, like you you have a, a central ner nervous system driven by a, a brain which has got pre-addicted levels of uh, dopamine receptivity to external stimulus. Fantastic, wonderful, you know. Smell the, the plants after the rain and, you know, the feeling of your feet on the sand and all of that. Um, and having a strong sense of well-being. But it's a big risk because uh, if you then get triggered and you go back to your old poison, you don't have the same tolerance to whatever it was and your real risk of overdose. Um, so that's, again, where there's a practical sort of guidance, like, you know, be really careful if you are at risk of relapse, be really careful because um, you're, you're not going to be able to take as much fentanyl or heroin as you previously did because your, you know, your, your, your neurocircuitry has been reset. And you did say, um, you know, like the ayahuasca, you know, they have, there's this dietary preparation, so respecting the medicine. And with ayahuasca, it's a very bland diet of pretty much just a bit of animal protein and kind of grains, rice, oats, this kind of stuff. What, 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 um, what, do, do uh, patients or um, uh, clients of the clinics, what, what kind of dietary restrictions would be recommended to them to prepare? Well, there's, there's certain things which you really, you know, shouldn't be taking, uh, you know, coffee, definitely stimulant-based um, foodstuffs and beverages. Um, great Grapefruit juices, um, you really shouldn't have that. It interacts badly with Ibogaine. I, wouldn't, I would say that there isn't, um, to my knowledge, I could be wrong, but there isn't 
a similar tradition in Buiti uh, of diatas, as you find in uh, you know South, South America and the rainforests um, in the Amazon. But at the same time, yeah, I just just uh, you know eat good for, you know general advice: eat good, healthy, balanced food, um, low on the stimulants, um, no alcohol. You know, if you can avoid cigarettes, then no cigarettes and all the rest of it. And then do you do you eat on the day of the treatment or do you try to keep an empty stomach? Uh you yeah, you've got to keep an empty stomach, otherwise it's gonna come come back up. I'm trying to remember what happened to me. I didn't eat for hours and hours before, yeah, in when I was in Gabon. And definitely um yeah, you keep you keep uh, your the, the, the day of the treatment, um definitely no no foodstuffs. Yeah, yeah, they say um I think that's why they say, you know, eat well to get to build up strength rather than fasting and and kind of limiting foods. Yeah. And just I, uh, I, another Yeah, sorry. Sorry. No, please. Well, I was just going to say, you know, like in a in a medical setting like um, you know, we're putting forwards with universal ibogaine, you you do you do need full, full medical equipment. You need a defibrillator in ca case of uh, you know, cardiac uh, issues. You need oxygen, you need to be measuring the the oxygen levels in the blood via a pulse ox. Uh, you need to have IVs on tap. Um, if there's any issues um, with electrolytes, you need to be able to put, um, pump in uh, electrolytes, you know, potassium to restore balance and so on. Uh, you need to be on a 12-lead uh, ECG machine, you know, measuring the heart. And there needs to be eyes on the ECG machine all the time for the first 48 hours. So, you know, to, to make sure that it's safe, 100% safe, that like no one ever dies, then it's an emergency room procedure for the first 24 to 36 hours. Um, you know, at Universal Ibogaine, a fellow board member, Dr. Alberto Sola, runs Clear Sky Recovery Cancun. He's had 3,700 patients and nobody's died. And that's because he comes from an ER background and knows what to do if something goes wrong. So, yeah, the, you know, there's just this kind of uh, perception, negative perception about Ibogaine out there, which is, you know, oh, it's cardiotoxic or it's neurotoxic, you know, or people die. Actually, the reality is people on methadone die far more frequently than on Ibogaine. The death rates for methadone are appalling, you know, one in 300, I think, something like that. So many people have miserable lives on opioid maintenance. You know, it's just like low sex drive, no pleasure, um, you know, it's just a gray, monotonous, monotonous existence. So like for me, when people come with a negative perception of Ibogaine, especially from traditional addiction backgrounds, um, where people have a vested interest in 12 step and traditional rehab and all the rest of it, it's like, fine, you know, Ibogaine's coming. It's extremely powerful tool, which, you know, you should be enthusiastic about because it can be perfectly safe in a, in a medical setting. Um, you, you know, it will be a very valuable tool to the work you do. And I think that's what's going to happen with Ibogaine that in the next few years, traditional rehabs, facilities, you know, once it's medicalized in places like Canada, which is where we're focused on, they will just build it in as a tool and have to, you know, adapt and all, all to the good, you know, like uh, Ibogaine will find itself inserted into different uh, medical settings and, um, you know, be be good for people with addiction in general. So, for me, I view it as a kind of unstoppable force now. Uh, I began mm. went through clinical trials with the FDA in the 90s, and for one reason or another, that got blocked politically. Now it's not going to get blocked because we have this terrible opioid epidemic, you know, in North America. 
addiction problems and pandemics, epidemics around the world, you know, crystal meth in Australia and uh, what's it called, Yabar in Southeast Asia and all around the world, you'll see different, you know, in the UK where I'm from, you know, we basically have an alcohol problem, uh, which has been there for decades, Ireland, you know. So it's like around oh, yeah, the world, yeah. there's different forms of addiction and we have a status quo of addiction treatments, which are completely ineffective for the most part. And Ibogaine, yeah. it's not going to change the world, but it will be a very powerful tool to be inserted into different addiction treatment settings, which will be of benefit to people that go to those places. Yeah, I've lived in Ireland 14 years and I know what the drinking culture is like yeah. there. So, yeah. and it's very similar in the in the UK. Um, but, you know, this is actually a question that I meant to ask you at the beginning of the show. Um, and I apologize for <laughs> forgetting, but we, when we're talking about addiction, right? This is, I'm, I'm glad you kind of touched on this, on this topic. We're not, when we say uh, opiate or opioid addiction, we're not just talking about heroin, which is actually a relatively small part of the overall opioid crisis. Can you give folks, and I'll probably insert the details of this into the introduction when I give you the introduction, because this is actually a much bigger problem that uh, guys like you and Ibogaine Universal or Universal Ibogaine are addressing. What is the, op what is the scale of this opioid crisis, actually? Yeah, I mean, it's it's massive in North America, Canada, where we're focused. Uh, you know, our company, Universal Ibogaine, is headquartered in Vancouver. There's an infamous part of the city center called the downtown east side. Um, I was there in February just before COVID hit. And yeah, it's like uh, the film Taxi Driver. It's just people strung out on the street. It's very dramatically visual and it's it's very tragic. But um that's that's a kind of skewed image of addiction, say in Canada or in in the U.S. Um, it's you know moms and dads. It's you know it's just anybody. Um, one, one one particular form of addiction which is uh, hidden from view is sports addiction. So um, in Canada, you know people play ice hockey, or you know in America basketball. Um, you know, high-performance athletes, when they have injuries, they, they can be prescribed OxyContin, you know, opiate-based, uh, opioid-based painkillers, and then they get addicted. Um, so, yeah, it's a completely different image of addiction, which is, which is below the surface. But um, it can be, you know, a, a classic story will be somebody's doing some, you know, in a suburban neighborhood, doing some work on their roof, and they fall off the ladder, and then they have a back injury, and then they go to the doctor, and they get a prescribed painkiller, opi opioid painkillers. Um, uh, and then, you know, then then the insurance policy uh, runs out and they're addicted and um, they, they flip to heroin. And, uh, you know, the heroin's got uh, fentanyl in like it always does have these days. And then, you know, <clears throat> their tolerance thresholds to fentanyl goes up and, you know, then it spirals out of control. And, you know, multiply that by hundreds of thousands across North America. Um, it's it's coming to Europe as well. You know, the UK, for instance, um, there aren't enough uh, warnings around uh, opioid-based painkiller distribution from GPs. Um, you know, it's not the same level as, as as the states or North America, but it's it's you know, at least five hundred thousand people who are addicted to opioid. From my memory, statistics. Yeah, it's something like wow. five and half a million plus are addicted to opioid-based painkillers in the UK alone. Don't have the statistics for across Europe, but it may well be similar. Because, yeah, just the pharmaceutical lobbying has been effective. Actually, one thing I heard three weeks ago was 
we kind of think, ah, the era of OxyContin and Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family, you know, they've been hit by these trillion dollar lawsuits, you know, class actions. And, and, you know, thank God it's finished. We're over, um, at least in terms of the pharmaceutical drive to distribute uh, opioid based painkillers like OxyContin. Somebody told me that all they've done is shifted base to Mexico. Um, and so there's been a legal change, which previously to uh, prescribe opioid-based painkillers, it was only anesthetists in Mexico, but now GPs can basically prescribe them. And they've just moved. It's a bit like the tobacco companies, right? You know, they, they got hit by uh, lawsuits and whatnot years ago, and then they just shifted to the, the third world or the developing world, you know, Africa and whatnot. Um, it seems like the same is happening. So they're just shifting base to like uh, more weakly regulated uh, jurisdictions to, to, to carry on, you know, with the playbook, basically. So, uh, yeah, it's, you know, to answer your question, it's all walks of life. There is no one image of addiction, which is like the image, you know, street based addiction is one thing, but it's suburban, it's rural, it's it's everywhere. In, in North America, it's the uh, it's the epicenter of it, but it's rippling outwards and getting distributed around the world. If you take, uh, you know, I spent some time working in uh, Southeast Asia in um, Myanmar and, um, and whatnot. And uh, the uh, <clears throat> Chinese speaking corner of, uh, of Myanmar, where they produce the Yaba, which are these little pills um, of basically crystal meth. And they, they lace them with vanilla so that it's uh, tastes nice for kids. And it's just insane, you know, like 12, 13 year olds. And it's like less than a dollar for a pill and it's crystal meth. And yeah, and, and they they churn this stuff out by the millions of tablets for the whole of Southeast Asia. So they have a very particular, and it, it's now reached Australia and uh, Japan. So they have a, a particularly evil form of uh, crystal meth um, addiction distributed throughout, you know, Asia Pacific, essentially. So um, yeah, you know, we... I don't know. Humans, we've reached, you know, on a, on a macro level, we've reached the end of the game of a certain way of existing on this planet. And um, we're all suffering because we're out of balance with the planet, you know. And on that level, it's going to take more than Ibogaine, far more than Ibogaine for yeah. us to collectively reset our species and live in balance with the planet, you know, so that we don't have this, you know, adaptive response of addiction. Yeah, I was just going to add that, you know, it's if trauma is the root cause of addiction, we need to figure out how are we traumatizing ourselves or our kids and either reduce or address those traumas earlier in life. And unfortunately, we, we seem to mo more perpetuate them than, than reduce them or alleviate them. But, you know, that's a topic for, for another podcast, another person. You, you're doing your part of the the what we can do is address very serious addictions which are you know it's, I love I love seeing um, folks like you out there doing this kind of stuff which kind of leads us to um, what is what so what's on your plan now for Universal Ibogaine I know you're thinking of I believe doing some clinical trials and maybe even going public with the company tell the folks uh, listening what you're up to We'll be yeah, to. so it's very exciting times, actually. Um, you know, obviously with the Compass Pathways uh, IPO on NASDAQ, you know, uh, capitalism, the markets are really perked up. You know, Compass Pathways is now valued at whatever, $1.3 in the last week or so of being, you know, listed what on NASDAQ. What is Compass Pathways? 
Compass Pathways is the main company um, working with uh, psilocybin medicalization. Um, uh, a major stakeholder, a shareholder in Compass Pathways is a tie. Um, so yeah, they're you know they're they're plowing a path in terms of being able to raise money and sort of like the prestige, you know, like overcoming this kind of slightly negative view. You know, it began with um, MindMed in Canada. They were the first psychedelics company to list on a stock exchange, in this case, the Toronto Stock Exchange. So that was a kind of a milestone uh, months ago. And then a couple of weeks ago, Compass listing on NASDAQ, you know, a big American technology exchange. So, you know, it's sort of like corporate capitalism re-perceiving psychedelics and seeing that this is the new thing. It's going to be much bigger than cannabis was a few years ago. It's going to be like the internet in a way. It's just going to be a major driver for investment and a completely new sector of the economy. So Universal Ibogaine, in our own way, we are very, very focused on Ibogaine medicalization. We're not looking at any other psychedelics. We're focused on Canada because um, Health Canada, on the one hand, it's you know a high-quality regulator. You know, the data from clinical trials in Canada is trusted around the world. If you finish phase two, um, you can then hopefully, as we plan to, take the phase two data and then start phase three trials in different countries. So you're fast-tracking the clinical trial process elsewhere. Um, but it's cheaper than America. Doing, doing clinical trials in, uh, in Canada is much cheaper than America. So you end up getting a drug med- medicalized at a, an affordable cost rather than, you know, to, to put a novel drug through clinical trials in America uh, is at least half a billion dollars. Um, wow. Yeah, so we'll be spending a fraction of that. Um, yeah, there's there's a real inertia against novel drug development. You know, most of the drugs that we deal with in our when we're sick are like decades old, basically because of this. Um, so yeah, to run ibogaine assisted psychotherapy through phase two, phase three clinical trials in Canada. Uh, once we get the phase two data approved by Health Canada, then we take that to run phase three clinical trials in other countries. We're planning Australia, New Zealand potentially Portugal as well. Um, And on the back, once you get the phase three data approved by these different regulators, then you can basically set up legal Ibogaine-assisted psychotherapy clinics in those those countries. Um, We are going to be... Just briefly, what what will your clinical trials target? Will it be opiate or uh, other addictions or mixed bag? Yeah, IV... IV injecting op- opioid ad- addiction. Okay. Um, yeah, okay. So intravenous opioid addiction. You have to be pretty narrow about that. Mm. And it, so is is that kind of the plan for if you were to expand to other countries like New Zealand, mm. Australia, also that? Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's a ton of work to be done. Obviously, Ibogaine has application be wide, much wider to other different substance abuse addictions, but... Yeah, clinical trials, you have to go very narrow um, to to be successful effectively. So there's a ton more research and development needed in in the future years. This is just like the the way in, the kind of thin end of the wedge. But, you know, Ibogaine for alcoholism, for crystal meth, these are all clinical trials that will also need to take place. But, you know, like the yeah the, the, the major addiction pa- pandemic in, um, in North America is opioid-based, so it's a good good place to start. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And so let's say that goes well, hopefully, please God, everything goes well. What's kind of the the plan for the next, let's say, so you expect to, to do 
to get into face to face three in the next what two three years? Is that a realistic target, or is it a little bit ambitious? Uh, it's, it's very realistic for us to complete phase two by um, mid twenty twenty two. It's very realistic. We would start um, in Q- the start of Q two. We would begin enrolling for phase two Q two twenty twenty one, and eleven twelve months later. You have a protocol where you have basically have two people a month going through and you have 20 people. So it would take about 10 or 11 months. Um, so by mid-2022, we should hopefully, best case scenario, have approved phase two data and be looking at planning for phase three. Um, you know, COVID, post-COVID, clinical trials are becoming much more adaptive, uh, a lot more use of data science um, uh, and real world data. So um, we're really hoping that we can have a fast track phase three. And by the end of 2024, I think it would be achievable that we get phase three data um, at least uh, archived and going through regulatory review and approval. Um, and by 2020, it's exciting. You know, it's, it's a, clinical trials is a, is a rabbit hole. There's a lot more involved than you can imagine from the outside as we're finding out. But I would say it's feasible that by 2025 in three countries we're rolling out legal ibogaine-assisted psychotherapy clinics. We're starting to look at franchising so that we can scale the model. And I would say by the end of the decade, maybe 10 countries and hundreds and hundreds of ibogaine clinics um, around the world um, in in Asia, Europe, in in North America, and so on. And that's that's feasible. That's definitely feasible. What what would be the size of a bare bones ibogaine clinic how many let's say clinicians like how many like maybe one md what other uh, staff and clinicians would that require so we're going to be opening an ibogaine clinic the first one uh, early next year because ibogaine is legal in the bahamas and it's been approved by a national ethics board under the ministry of health um so we'll be opening Clear Sky Recovery Nassau in hopefully January 2021. And for example, that will be 15 bed. There'll be like a, a senior psychiatrist who's a prominent Bahamanian guy. Um, there'll be someone that like uh, is sort of like the MD of the clinic, if you like. There'll be a senior doctor. There'll probably be a junior doctor. And then there'll be more or less a ratio of uh, nurse per patient. Um, so are you so back? I lost you for a sec. Sorry, I lost you for a sec. Yeah, I think probably me. Uh, yeah. So to, to rewind, yeah, we're opening, uh, we're going to be opening, uh, our first Ibogaine clinic, uh, in early next year. Ibogaine is actually legal in the Bahamas. It's been approved by a national ethics committee. So we'll be setting up clear sky recovery Nassau. Uh, that will have a uh, someone to operationally run the place. It'll have a senior doctor, a junior doctor, something like a na- nurse, a qualified nurse per patient type ratio, um, and then all the sort of you know operational team like a chef and uh, you know cleaners and all, and whatnot. But yeah, in terms of optimal clinic size, I would say between ten and fifteen patients or beds. Anything bigger than that, it's just getting too chaotic. And, you know, in the era of COVID and post-COVID, it's just too difficult to manage in terms of getting people in and having their test results, you know, their COVID test results and so on. 
So, yeah, I think that would be the model for us. Uh, Clear Sky Recovery, Nassau, 15, 15 beds would be optimum in terms of from a business perspective, it makes sense. But it also from a kind of customer client perspective, it's not too big and chaotic and too much going on. And uh, yeah, like uh, th- uh, outside of the medical team, there will be all kinds of therapists, holistic therapists, you know, masseurs, and, uh, breath yeah. experts and all the rest of it, uh, you know, also traditional addiction counseling, you know, there's a role for that. So uh, yeah, it's sort of like uh, it will. And then, uh, you know, as we develop, we'll be developing our aftercare proposition as well. So whether you stay in the same place or you go somewhere else on the island uh, to, to be determined, um, the place we're thinking of buying, they actually, the, the owners currently own a tiny little island off the coast of Nassau. So an aftercare facility, which is just like on its own, a kind of island off the coast of Nassau might be really nice somewhere where you're just beach and just like you know enjoying good food and walking on the sand in the evening something like i said going back to the beginning where you're just enjoying being in your body and in nature again and going for a swim and stuff like that it's all good stuff for aftercare yeah that sounds really awesome very very exciting um i will certainly be trying to be keeping abreast of the development in you know the clinical research and um i was kind of happy to see it um uh, in Portugal, obviously, they've decriminalized pretty much everything except some of these new research chemicals, but Ibogaine is being decriminalized. So just, uh, I, I suppose, one final question before you can let the folks know where to find you and Universal Ibogaine. But w- what what do you think is are the prospects for uh, 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 more of these centers in Portugal? I know there's at least one or two near me here. Yeah, so I help I help set up uh, Tabula Rasa retreat, which is in the Alentejo in um, in Portugal. Um, the the owner Alvaro Franti is a good mate of mine. He's doing amazing work there. Um, I would love to, you know, I would love Universal Ibogaine to partner or form some kind of kind of alliance with Tabula Rasa because uh, I just respect the work he does so much. Um, and, and you know, in terms of phase three trials. It, a dream of mine would be that we take the phase two Health Canada data and we go ahead and we engage with uh, the authority, the medic, medical regulator in Portugal, and mm-hmm. we do phase three trials in, in Portugal. Um, you know, Alvaro really did a lot of work four years ago in planning for a clinical trials in Portugal, and then he realized, oh, my God, it costs so much. But uh, hopefully there's enough money in the system now to push it forward. So. It would be fantastic for Portugal to be the first place that you know has 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 legal legal ibogaine in the next few years. Um, so let's see let's see what we can do. Yeah. All right, Jeremy. Thank you uh, for you know spending some time and ed- educating us on this very important uh, compound. And um, you know, it, th- this is such a such a huge problem we have. You know that um, I love I love seeing guys like you pushing really kind of the leading on the leading edge of this uh tell folks where they can find um more information about universal i begin and where they can kind of find you to follow you on social media please yeah thank you christian it's i begin inc inc not inc i begin inc.com that's the universal i begin website clear sky recovery will be the name of our clinics brand that most people will know uh we haven't set the branding up for that we're working on that at the moment uh, Twitter, I'm on Jeremy Wheat, my handle, um, W-E-A-T-E, um, and I interact a lot about psychedelics there. But, uh, yeah, it, and if any of your listeners are interested in taking Ibogaine now, just yeah, just get in touch with us through uh, Universal Ibogaine. 
All right. Uh, I'll have those links in the show notes, of course. And uh, once again, Jeremy, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank you, Christian. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Connecting Minds. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and found it interesting, illuminating, or inspiring. For episode show notes, links, and further information on our guests, please visit ChristianJordanov.com. If you found this episode valuable, please share it with someone who might also enjoy it. Thank you for being here. Thank you.